To Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is the podcast. And the star of the show, of course, is Brian Mannix from the penthouse of his gold, from the penthouse of the Gold Coast. Let's now cross to Brian Mannix. And welcome to the Penthouse Club. Uh, Mary Hardy should be here any Uh, It's only a matter of time before you do that, isn't it? (laughs) Actually, I know a guy uh, called Dixie Duncan. He was a floor Oh, yeah, I remember Dixie. Well, he was telling me about the penthouse club and he said that they'd get there at about 10 in the morning and they'd start drinking. Yeah. And and he said, you know, even when you watch the show, you can hear bottles getting knocked over and then he said that he actually got done for drink driving long before point oh five. Yeah. Um, driving home from doing the penthouse club. And just thinking, well, to get done for drink driving back in the 60s or early 70s, you'd have have to be pissed out of your mind. (laughs) They're talking Um, truckloads. You'd have to be, yeah. But um, so, yeah, the Penthouse Club, it um, was powered by alcohol and uh, I guess that's the same with me. Well, I remember remember in my mind uh, Bill Collins sitting there with uh, with, uh, literally like the Dave Allen thing with a a glass of something in his hand and, and a cigar. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's one of my memories of, of looking at that show. And then they crossed to the trots. <laughs> Going on here. <laughs> it was a bizarre. And Ivan Hudson used to play the piano. Yeah, he did too. Yeah, he did too. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a weird show, wasn't it? Well, like, we may we may bring that back. We may do a Life of Brian Penthouse Club version. Who knows? Well, let's cross to the trots right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. Well, let's talk about uh, who we got on the show. And we've got two of the greats. You want to talk about uh, uh, music legends in this country. I reckon these two qualify really easily. Oh, without a doubt, without yep. a doubt. Um, and, yeah, look, the, and their music still holds up really well today, oh. um, especially uh, Black and Blue, which we, we both love. Yep. We're going to talk about the one they did together, which is Black and Blue, and then the one that Matt did on his own, which is I remember when I was young, they're kind of the focus of what we're talking about. But it's Phil Manning, a legendary guitarist, and uh, and just, you know, when it comes to being one of the great guitar players, he's there. And Matt Taylor, whose distinctive vocals on Chain and on his solo stuff just, you know, blew the roof off the joint. And what he tells us about the recording <laughs> of um, I Remember When I Was Young, that blew my mind. I just had no idea that that could happen. But um, anyway, we'll let everybody hear. His, we'll get to that. We'll that get to Matt. Themselves. We'll get to we'll get to Phil. Now, our other guest is ostentatious. We'll talk about that later. But let's talk about Murcots. Oh, please. Well, let's. Oh, all right. <laughs> be a good driver. Go to Murcots. Yeah. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Is but, that right? But yeah, 1300 triple five five seven six. That's it. Murcots.edu.au. They'll look after you. They've got advanced courses. They've got to, you know, if there's someone, someone's coming up through the, you know, your family, and you think, oh, I've watched him. He's not a very good. He's not good. Give them a gift certificate. You can get jump online and grab one of those at mercots.edu.au and it's a very subtle way of telling someone rather than going, dear, you're a bloody awful driver, I think you should do something about it. Just subtly give them a gift voucher and there you go. Problem I think solved. If, you, if you've got a, uh, an 18-year-old that's just getting yep. their licence or just got it, great idea to get them uh, a little bit of extra training to 
make sure that they're safe. Yep, exactly right. Exactly right. Murcots.edu.au, 1300 Let's get to our legends. And we start with the one and only Phil Manning, and then it'll be Matt Taylor. All right. Yo, I'm loving it. I'm in surf's paradise, just looking at the ocean and... You bastard. 23 <laughs> degrees. It's wonderful. Uh, hang, on, <laughs> hang on, hang on, Phil. Let's do that in harmony. You bastard. Bastard. <laughs> hey, so you're obviously keeping yourself very busy. This new album you sent me, uh, the tracks and stuff uh, from. Now, when did when did you start working on that? Was that is this a COVID project? I guess I'd started preparing to do something, uh, and then COVID came along. Any sort of ideas that I had in mind went out the window. I, I basically got myself some drum pads with some reasonable sounds on them, and basically had to learn to play drums because I didn't want to. I didn't want to program anything. So basically, I, I worked on it. You know, instead of going into a little studio with with drums and bass and a keyboard player or something like that, I, was, I sort of stuck with doing it myself. So I, I basically did. You know, put down guide tracks or put down finished acoustic tracks, and then added to it myself uh, here. And and so it was quite a long process, but it was good fun. When COVID came along, I, you know, I, I was typical of typical of most musicians. I I had you know probably in the first six or seven months, I had probably twenty gigs that were postponed and then, you know, they were postponed again and uh, and so I had to do something and so I did the album. I built myself a, uh, a short-scale Telecaster from the ground up with pieces of pine that I had around the property. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I got back into painting because I, I went to art school before I became a musician and and over the years, I've sort of dabbled a bit here and there, but I haven't really sort of had extended an extended time to paint because I've always been going on the road or what have you. So I've uh, actually been able to paint. So I've, I've really kept myself very busy, which is great. What, what sort of stuff do you paint, Phil? I guess the, the easiest way I could sort of describe it would be, you know, mas- sort of basically impressionist, really, somewhere between... If you can imagine sort of having a part of a painting that's a bit Jeffrey Smartish and another part that's that's more in your um, you know your impressionist sort of area, and um, oh, yeah, it sounds cool. Which is really interesting because my wife is a is an abstract artist. That's really good because we don't compete with each other. Uh-huh. <laughs> one wall of the house for her, one wall of the house for you. Is that how it works? <laughs> Oh, mate, you should see the bloody houses. <laughs> there's, there's guitars and paint brushes and and pictures and and uh, the wife's prints and stuff. Oh, it's ridiculous, oh, but that's, um, that's just what happens when you when you're creatively active. We wanted we wanted to, to highlight uh, black and blue because uh, you know the segment we have on the on the podcast is uh, I love that song and and when it comes to Great Australian songs, not of, not of any era, because for me, this is a timeless, timeless song. You can play it now, you can play it thirty years ago, you can play it fifty years ago, and it just works. Black and blue. What what? When I say that, what does that mean to you? Well, really, at the end of the day, I suppose in in, in most practical terms, what black and blue uh, means to to me and to Matt. Taylor, uh, it, it it's give, it gave us a career, 
in that it was a big hit, and as a result of that, uh, and and Gadinsky's management, whatever chain, which at the time, and chain was already quite a well-known band and quite real, quite a sort of big band in the sort of underground scene. Uh, but Black and Blue put us out into a, more into a mainstream thing, and uh, and of course because of that we we got well known, and as I said, it, it established a career for us, and uh, and then of course we had we had Judgment and the Toward the Blues album, which went double gold over a long period of time, and of course Matt had I remember when I was young which Chain played on. It was actually a Chain record, although it really, but Matt wrote it and it came out as a Matt Taylor single. Uh, so all, when you, all, all that happened in a fairly short time in the early 70s. And uh, as a result of that, we, we basically, you know, it gave us a grounding to have careers. Was it, that was pretty much Gadinsky's first record, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't. Uh, Michael was our manager, uh, right. but we we were still actually on festival, and uh, they came out on the Infinity label, which was right. uh, festival sort of put together a label to deal to deal with the people they couldn't deal with, sort of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. The ones that didn't fit yeah. into the three minute pop song la da area. <laughs> Yeah, the ones that smoked dope in the studio <laughs> yeah, and things it. like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were on Infinity for uh, Black and Blue, Judgment, and Toward the Blues album. Then Michael got into doing uh, the Mushroom music, and I think Matt Taylor's first album uh, was the first Mushroom album, yeah. if I remember correctly. Right. And then Chain, Chain as such, moved over to Mushroom. We had a couple of minor hits with with uh, with Mushroom, but uh, the, the the big ones were with uh, Infinity. Well, what was the inspiration for the song? Because I listened to it and it just sounds like a biker gang to me. It just sounds really yeah, tough. Well, and, well in, interestingly enough. Punched, these guys had punched the crap out of you, sort of vibe about it. Yeah, well, that, that's a sort of an unfortunate aspect of it in some ways because it was it it came about. Uh, well, it, it initially came about in that I had this riff. Um, a couple of the members of Chain had left, and Barry Harvey, Barry Sullivan, and myself went up to Brisbane, and we were still doing Chain as a trio. And uh, I just sort of sort of said, look, you know, I, I don't, I, I didn't feel like I was doing justice trying to be a, a guitarist in a trio and a singer and carry the whole thing. So I suggested that we get Matt to come up and join, which which happened. And our first rehearsal, I had this sort of riff that I'd been playing around with and uh, we were, you know, tossing up what we were going to learn to play and and uh, write some material, and I came up with that riff, and Matt said, oh, that'd suit this idea that I've had. Matt had always wanted to write a work song, like an old Negro work song. And uh, so he went over and sat in a corner and got a pad out and wrote wrote the lyrics, and we we added the whole thing up. But uh, it also, it came out at that time when the Vietnam uh, all the Vietnam demonstrations were going on, anti-Vietnam yeah. demonstrations were going on. 
And so it had, it basically had that sort of anti-social aspect or, or should I say social revolution aspect to it uh, where, you know, sort of basically saying we've had enough of this. Um, yeah. But over over the years, it sort of got acquired <laughs> to uh, to be a biker sort of thing, which uh, in some ways was great, and in some ways wasn't so great. The, uh, in in that uh, you know when we when we started to get lots and lots and lots of bikers coming to our gigs, it it scared away <laughs> some of our audience, <laughs> but. Uh, but over the years, that all sort of evened itself out. But for a while there, it was it was really quite it was really quite uh, daunting the fact that that it became so popular with, with the bikers, you know. And uh, and it's and as I said, it scared away a lot of the uh, the ordinary audience. But but over the years, uh, people have all got used to it, and uh, you know. So now we get a we get a real mixture of people coming to our shows. Did, did you know it was going to be something special when you first played it? Well, we we, we actually we laughed our heads off. We had we had this uh, this uh, hash that we called we called it glass cage dope because as soon as you got stoned, you felt like you were in a glass cage. And um, we we went in and recorded it at uh, Festival Studios in Sydney, and then. Having uh, mixed it, we got in our van to drive back to Melbourne for gigs because we were on our way back from Brisbane. So we uh, stopped off in Sydney, recorded it, then got in the van to drive overnight back to Melbourne. And uh, all we laughed all the way down. We said, this is going to be the biggest flop uh-huh. of all time or it's going to be a hit. Remarkably, it became a hit. Quite a part of that was due to, to Michael who – uh, at that stage, uh, Michael became our manager, and um, of course, uh, he he promoted it and and uh, ran dances and put us on and and basically uh, forced the radio stations to play it because the radio stations didn't want to know about it. Uh, when you talk to Matt, he'll, he's, Matt's got a couple of funny stories about that, but uh, uh, Michael really helped push it. And uh, and get, got onto radio, and once it started getting played, then it, it gained some momentum uh, of its, itself. Yeah, and it just seemed to be one of those things that happened at a particular time in in history, you know, and took off. And so, but as I said, we we thought it would be a complete flop, or a, it would be a hit. One of the two. <laughs> There's a lot of really good songs out at that particular time too. So you had some pretty stiff competition. I remember being at uh, Windeen Caravan Park and there was an area that had a pool table and um, had a jukebox. And in that pool table, Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, Black and Blue by Chain and Children of the Revolution by Mark Bowler, they just got thrashed. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's sort of like, you know, it wasn't like um, you had Rolf Harris to beat, you had some really big bands to beat to get it up there. So, oh yeah, well, well, at that time in Melbourne, uh, in that particular year, which was 1971, uh, the top positions in the chart in Melbourne were owned by Chain, Daddy Cool, and Spectrum. Like Spectrum had all be gone. We had Black and Blue, and of course, Daddy Cool had uh, Eagle Rock, which 
Eagle Rock cleaned everyone up. Of course, that was uh, that was that was a gigantic hit. Yeah, number one for about a year. Or so. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, year. yeah. Well, yeah. as I said, as I said, uh, those three <laughs> bands basically owned the charts for almost a year between between the three of us. You know, there's a lot of good overseas bands out of that time too. So you know, all, all the more kudos to you. And to the song. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and some of them toured. I mean, we did a show in Western Australia. The show was Chain, Manfred Man's Earth Band, Free, and wow. Deep Purple. So, wow. um, yeah, that was a pretty, that was a big show, that one. Shoot. And uh, as a result of that, uh, as a result of that show, Manfred Man went back to England and recorded Black and Blue. And they did yeah, they did a ver- the Man for a Man Earth Band did a version of Black and Blue in in sort of seventy one seventy two. Was that Chris Thompson singing in those days? No, it was Mick Rogers. Oh yeah, Procession. Who'd been in Procession? Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. And Mick's still performing over there. I I often get uh, Facebook things from him, but uh, he st- he still works over there. It's great. They were a good band, Procession. They were. They were an incredible band. Um, uh, so did it do any good? Did it get released in, in the UK? Did anyone pick up on it at all? Uh, I don't know how well it went. I, I think it, it it got some minor success, I think. Did you like their version of it? Uh, it was all right. It was all right. I, uh, it was a, a much more electronic version than ours. Right. And uh, I, th- I think... The, the the electronics in a way sort of took away some of the earthiness. I, I struggle to think of anybody else singing it, and I know Mick's a great singer, but I struggle to think of anybody else singing it apart from Matt. Well, I can tell you one person who can sing the hell out of it uh, because we uh, he played with us at Byron Bay because Matt, Matt couldn't do Byron Bay this year, Loose Fest, because of the, uh, the uh, Western Australian lockdown laws and stuff that were happening at the time. And um, so uh, and they wanted – Peter at uh, Blues Fest really wanted Chain. So I had to put together some sort of a show with, with, without Matt. And we got uh, we had uh, Ash Grunwald get up and do Black and Blue and a couple of others with us. But, but Ash really nailed the Black and Blue sound. And he's, he's recorded it. Yeah. Ash Grunwald did a version of it with – Two of the guys from, um, oh, what are they? they uh, I've got, got a block on their names. Uh, rockabilly type band. Um, oh, I know. Look, I'll remember, the, I'll remember the name of them at bloody three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> we'll just call Kevin Telling. Yeah, thanks, At three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'll be up. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, did the song become uh, a hardship for the band? Did it become, you know, the old mill around your neck kind of thing or was it always a joy when you got to that part of the set to do Black and Blue? It's always it's always been a, a you know a fantastic thing to do with Chain. Uh, it, it's been a little bit of a, a millstone around the neck when it comes to me personally, and probably Matt with his solo stuff. Uh, although Matt sort of owned it more than me because of his voice, uh, and Matt worked out a, a way of doing it for solo things, but. Uh, for years, I avoided it like the plague because I just didn't feel I could do justice to it. 
in a, in my solo context, but that's changed recently, and I've I've worked out a version of it in a slightly lower key, and and uh, and I can pull it off quite well now. But uh, but as far as chain performing, it's concerned, it's one of those things where uh, you have to enjoy it because it mean it means a lot to us and what happened to us afterwards. And as well as that, being the sort of band that Chain is, we've never been lumbered by playing something exactly the same way every night. And because it, because we've been a sort of slightly jammy band anyway, uh, it's, always, it's always slightly – it never comes out exactly the same, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, so you keep it fresh every time you play. It's sort of like something new to it. So, yeah. That's a good idea. So uh, the man who gave us that that unforgettable riff of uh, of black and blue on his new album writes a song called Confectionery Blues. <laughs> who are you, Phil Manning? <laughs> yeah, well, this, this is right. I, I get very I get pretty confused by that myself. And um, and and I guess that's been in in that that's been uh, an issue all the way through with me in in terms of. I, I've always been uh, a, a bit of a chameleon when it, when it comes to styles of music because so I mean, over the years I've worked in the rock scene, uh, I've, I've worked in the folk scene and even done country music festivals because what I sort of do covers all those bases. And I guess it, it also because I did so much session work uh, over the years, I've been sort of in that sort of area where I play almost anything, you know, and um, it's been an asset in some ways and a drawback in others in that, uh, in fact, someone, who was it? I think it might have been Trevor Lucas said something like along along the lines that uh, I've always kept people guessing, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm too old to change now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's made an interesting and varied career. I'm, I'm assuming that that's kept you interested all the way through as well. Well, most definitely, most definitely. I, I mean, where it becomes confusing for me is, is uh, I get ready to go to a gig and I start thinking, oh shit, which, you know, which gig is it? Electric. Okay. <laughs> which amp do I take? Which guitar do I take? Where's my leads? Where, where's my pedal board for that? You know. <laughs> oh, it's an acoustic gig. Oh, shit. Which acoustic am I going to use? Uh, it's, uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, that's good. And uh, the, the new the new album is available on, on your website and all those sorts of things? Yes, it's available on my website. Uh, in fact, that's that's basically it, really. Uh, I haven't bothered putting it into – endeavouring to put it into shops. Uh, that. Is a whole different thing, yeah. and the other thing is that even though I've got uh, Laneway Music online, Laneway Music have got lots of Chain and lots of me from the past, and that's available for streaming on on one quality, or you can purchase stuff on a much bit higher quality yeah. through uh, iTunes and what have you through Laneway Music. Uh, but with this new album, I'm not putting it up online at all. Until I've uh, until I've had a chance to sell actual physical CDs, a uh, little bit of a revolt from me about the uh, streaming thing. Good yeah. on you. What about live gigs, yeah. Phil? You got you, you're back in the in the fold there. 
live. I'm not doing a. I'm not doing a great deal of live stuff. I I, I got sick of <laughs> sick of um, rebooking gigs and and then having to postpone them and. And you know, people would buy their tickets, and then they'd have to go and get their money back from Ticket Tech. Or, but most of my work at the moment uh, is solo, uh, and uh, we're just trying to organise what chain we'll do in the in the near future. Which brings me moment. to the question I want to ask you: Is your relationship with Matt, and uh, and uh, that's endured over the years? You know, guitarist and singer and and uh, mates. Yeah, yeah. We're, well, you know, Matt and I started working together in '67. Uh, it was either late '66 or early '67, and um, and you know we've had our ups and downs with as you do, uh, but you know at the end of the day, Matt's probably my best mate, you know, and um, uh, we we uh, have great respect for each other, and you know, like I said, we're you know I, I if I want to ring someone up and have a chat, it's Matt. <laughs> Uh, no, beautiful. Phil, thanks so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. It's uh, been great catching up. It is it's just such an iconic song, such a bloody great song. Uh, you should be yeah, really, thank really, you. really, really proud, not only of, you know, your body of work, but uh, if you want to pick, if you've got a song that is a legacy, bloody hell, that's a pretty good one to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's remarkable how it's lasted and uh, uh, that, you know, that's, that's a really uh, very – Nice thing for us, you know. Yeah, bloody hell. Absolutely. Your work is so hard on my back, near bro. My brow is wet and my throat to choke. You send me here for ten long years. I miss my whiskey and I miss my beer. Ain't seen a gal since I don't know when. And the way you dream, I won't see one again.
Taylor, it's Kevin Hillier and Brian Mannix. Ah, oh, fantastic. How are you? Very yeah, good. All the better for hearing you. <laughs> oh, well, uh, uh, I, I don't know how much of a healing uh, presence I have, but uh, hopefully it's a bit there. So what are you up to these oh. days, mate? You're living in Perth. What are you doing? Uh, Perth's been pretty much cut off from the rest of Australia for quite a while. So I've just been doing a little bit of work locally, and even that's sort of drying up now where uh, a lot of people just aren't going out and stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm writing songs all the time. I never stop and, uh, you know, record. Uh, you, you know, you record albums that no one will probably ever hear, but uh, worth, you know, you, you just keep going. You do it because you love it these days, uh you know, um, yeah, I, I still do some recording and stuff, but and I stick it on Spotify and that. But you sort of think, oh well, it's there if somebody wants to hear it. But um, it's not like the old days when you, you know, you make money out of writing a song. It's those days are long gone. Well, you'd know it yourself. Where um, fifteen years ago, you'd get two sheets of paper and a thousand dollars. Royalties. Now you get about eight. Well, the equivalent of about eight hundred sheets of paper, and uh, a check for two hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, someone in uh, Estonia has uh, listened to one of your songs, and you've got one tenth of a cent. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, I think, isn't it? I think a, I think a million hits on Spotify gets you about a thousand bucks for or something like that. It's ridiculous. No, it's absolutely. You know, um, uh, I'll tell you about this. is fantastic. I rang up uh, Spotify, had all my stuff, and I'm thinking, gee, you know, I, I never really gave them permission to do it, and I, I uh, uh, you know, sent the emails and everything, and. 
they got back to me and said, how do we know you're Matt Taylor? (laughs) (laughs) Can you prove you're Matt Taylor? And I thought, no, I really can't because you're dealing with bots. You know, you're dealing with uh, just dots and O's and dashes, basically, rarely touched by human hands. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, that's a bit really interesting. I, that was the last thing I thought you were going to say, but yeah, how do we know you're Matt Taylor? Well, yeah, well, actually, now come to think of it, how do Kevin and I know that you're <laughs> Matt Taylor? <laughs> Well, you don't. <laughs> you know. Oh, well, you uh, the, only, the only thing you've got going for you is there's no one on earth who's want to do it. You're the best Matt Taylor impersonator we've come across, so we're going to stick with you. Well, <laughs> you, you may not like this, but there is a Matt Taylor. You go, go on the internet, put in Matt Taylor, and you might get the Justin Bieber impersonator. <laughs> really? Yeah, there's a Justin Bieber impersonator. I didn't. So I didn't even get the original Justin Bieber. I only got an impersonator, and his name <laughs> Matt Taylor. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you know, there'd be a, there'd be a lot of people. Uh, you know, someone says, "Oh, you should look up Matt Taylor." Oh, mate. Um, you know. That, that's pretty limp music. You said it was pretty good. <laughs> uh, we should try and, and get that, that Justin Bieber impersonator. He looks good for 73. Right. He looks good for 73. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, good. Now, listen, we spoke to Phil about black and blue. We want to talk to you about black and blue as, as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so tell us your recollections of sitting in a corner with a writing pad writing the lyrics to it. Well, we're at our first gig. Oh, no, sorry, our first practice. I've just joined Chain. I've just flown up from Melbourne, and uh, I think it's a Wednesday, and we have to play uh, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, so we have to get a few songs off. So we go through every everything we know between us. And at the end of the night, Phil's sitting on his amp and he starts to play. And I went up to Phil. I said, Phil, that riff's fantastic. What on, where did you get it from? He says, oh, it's just something I've been mucking around with. And I said, mate, I'm just going to, you guys have a cup of tea or something. I'm going to sit in that corner, just write out a whole pile of heavy words, and we'll do a work. And we did it that weekend. Wow, Jeez. it's 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 a great song. And as I was saying to Phil before, it just sounds like bikies, and it sounds like the people singing it get in fights and would punch you up. And I don't know oh, why yeah. that is, but it's um it's a really tough song, and I I, I think that's one of its main appeals. Oh, uh, it is. Uh, uh, you know, even uh, Gadinsky, uh, you know, one of the times I saw him before he died, he said, God, he says, we were lucky. They wouldn't even play it now, you know, if it no. was a brand new song and it was released. You know, uh, it's got to be a little bit chirpy these days. Well, Matt, as a, as a radio bloke who started in radio in 1973, I'm surprised it actually got played 
back in the 70s, in 71 and 72, because it was so different and so aggressive and so non-what-everything-else that was going on the radio at the time. Well, let, let me tell you about going into... Um, there was one of the radio stations. We had to go in and do all the radio shows and that. And uh, I went in and there was this DJ there and I shook his hand and said, uh, you know, thanks for playing, um, uh, you know, Black and Blue. He said... Mate, I wouldn't play this, but it's number one and I have to. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you, you know, but you know what it was like in the early 70s, you know. Um, uh, there was, you know, there's some unbelievable things going on. It's and, uh, you know, people just, um, it was just a little bit too far out for them. And, uh, you know. I remember old Stan Rafe, uh, um, he wasn't too impressed with it. Really? No. But, uh, but, but we, we got on quite well with old Stan. Uh, uh, when I remember when I was young, came out, he, he he was a bit happier. At the time when it came out, like in the 70s on the top 40 chart, you might have some country song or, uh, you know, some girl singing some soppy ballad. It was a real... Yeah eclectic sort of collection of music. And when you've got a country song and some girl singing soppy ballads and stuff, that makes the song sound even tougher than it already is. Um, You're right. It was, yeah. yeah, it was right out of the box. It was great. It still but, it, but, but it was a lovely time, you know. Um, it was a, uh, in the early 70s, and that's why uh, Mushroom Records and everything eventually took off. There, there wasn't any formula. Like today... Like, I could get, you know, probably 50% of the songs that would be released last week and uh, show you the method that they've used to um, to produce them. You know, uh, what yeah. chords to put together and uh, you don't want a chord that's jerky. You want it to just flow into the next one. You don't want anyone to turn off the radio. Yeah. Play it safe. But in the early 70s, you just have to look at the early Mushroom record. You had McKenzie Theory, the Dingoes, terrific bands, but all playing completely different stuff. Um, you know, I'll Be Gone from Spectrum. It was just – and you could go and see those bands any night of the week. It was just a wonderful time. Them days, the bands made up their own mind what they were going to do and – what oh, their interest yeah. would be, and that sort of stuff. It was, it was um, far purer than what it is today, where it's sort of like bureaucracy trying to make hit records, and that's sort of pretty. You know, if you try to if you try to do a song to please everybody, you'll end up pleasing nobody. You should just do music to please yourself, and then we surprise how many people like it. It's my sort of theory. It's that old thing about um, people can pick out someone who's not themselves. And, yes. you know, if, if you're Elton John and you play your the music that is you and, and millions of people like it, that's fantastic. You know, if you're like me and you play music that's, you know, probably not as accessible, but, you know, you're still you. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, and, and that's really what counts. People can pick out, you know, people putting on a show that's, 
not them. Man, yeah. I, know, uh, I, know, I know Brian's talked about this in his experience with this, but do you remember the first time you heard Black and Blue on the radio? Uh, well, the first time I heard my own song on the radio. Yeah. Well, you get pretty excited. And, of course, um, uh, the other reason why Black and Blue was played, and I sometimes forget this, is that um, we were in Melbourne. At that stage, we would have been one of the most popular bands in Melbourne. So our following bought it into number one in Melbourne. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we went oh, – this is a, a lovely uh, story too um, – uh, this was more for I remember when I was young, but they didn't play Black and Blue in Sydney. They said, "Oh, it's, it doesn't suit the uh, you know the the quality of our listeners." You know, Black and Blue. <laughs> so uh, they were going to get a, a little bit upset if uh, they hear someone yelling at them. The next time we went in, I, I went in because. Um, uh, Meldrum was working for um, uh, Gadinsky at the time. We went into 2SM. Of, uh, of course, 2SM is um, St. Mary, 2 St. Mary, and um, we went up to the top floor to see the the top guy, and uh, we're asking him to play. I remember when I was young, Meldrum looks in the waste paper basket and his, I remember when I was young. Oh. So uh, Sydney uh, didn't really come to the uh, party too much. Wow! Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And so that was that was that was, uh, that was good fun. Uh, the times changed. Really, everything changed when um, coloured television came in and Countdown started. What about yeah. what about I remember when I was young? Let's talk about that now. What, what, do you remember writing that? Oh yeah, um, I was living on a commune. I'd, I'd given up music uh, after um, Black and Blue and um, Chain broke up and everyone went their own way doing their own thing. So I went and lived on a commune for about a year and a half. And it became very apparent that I wasn't a very good farmer. And uh, so I, I decided, no, I'll, uh, I'll go back and do some music. But I'd been writing songs the whole time. I, I fast, uh, fasted for two weeks on water. I, I, I read somewhere that you could become enlightened if you fasted for, for one day for every day you've been alive. And I think I was about 23 at the time. So all I had to do to become enlightened was to fast for 23 days. Right. Seemed pretty simple to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> But after two weeks, people are coming up and saying, Matt, you were thin to start off with. You're fading away to nothing. You're going to die. So uh, after two weeks, I uh, broke the fast. And I went up. But We had a lovely dam uh, where all the water was kept on the farm. And I up uh, walked up to the dam and, uh, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, what a... What roller coaster ride I've just been through for the last three years, you know. Then it just came into my head. I'll tell you, when I was young, the world had just begun and I was happy. I used to wonder about the earth and how it moved around the sun so snappy. 
imagination gone wild, makes a very backward child. That's what they told me. Back at school, I'd sit around just waiting for the sound so I could go on home. And I thought, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> so I run down to the um, to the farmhouse. I I just I've got a, a, one guitar. I've sold all my instruments. I've got one beat up old guitar, dirty old string, and I get a basic bumper bumper together and um, get a melody and everything like that. And um, I, I write down the words. The next day, I think I better um, I, I better see what I wrote down with that. Um, I better find out what I wrote down with that song. I, I've got to get another verse. I'm just about to write down back when I was young. That would be better. And and I just wrote, I remember when I was young. And uh, the, the rest of the song was written uh, from then on. Yeah, I think oh. I think the lyrics are a really, really super important part of that song because it was, as you say, it's really honest. And that honesty, you know, everybody related to that. You know, oh, like I mean, when I was... Yeah, like the, the lyrics were universal, even though they were particular to you, they were universal to everybody else. And it's like, once again, you know, follow your heart, not, you know, try and ask what's inside you, not what you think might be inside somebody else. And uh, yeah. I think that the lyrics, you know, they're just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Did you then think, I mean, uh, that before you wrote every piece of music, you need to fast for two weeks and just... No, no, that was the only time oh, I ever it? did it. Yeah. Good, yeah. good move. Good move. When you when you recorded that song, I mean, Phil Phil Manning spoke to us and he, he mentioned that a, a chain played on that song and it was virtually a chain song, but it came out as a Matt oh, Taylor, yeah. Taylor song. Why did it no, come out... No, all the guys played on it. Why did it come out as a Matt Taylor song rather than a, a chain song? And and were you were you confident, you know, because Mushroom was just starting, you were the first big signing to that and all, all that sort of stuff. How did that all play out for you? When I left the commune, I still couldn't uh, come back to the city. You know, um, I'd been living in the country for, you know, 15 months or something like that. So... I go and get a little farm outside Frankston. Uh, this green Jaguar comes up the bumpy dirt road and uh, who should pop out but Michael Gadinsky. And he, he doesn't even say good day. He says, Matt, you got any songs? I said, yeah, Michael, I've got tons of songs. I'm starting a new record label. Do you want to be on it? I said, yeah, no, that sounds good. Okay, when do you want to record? I said, oh, look, can you bring the recording studio out to the farm? He said, what day? <laughs> I said, oh, any time you like. And I said, just ring up the boys from Chain. They can come out and play on the album too. So that was virtually uh, how you did business uh, in the early 70s. Good God. Sure. Wow, that's great. So, so did they get like a, a mobile recording van just to yeah. record it? They, um, they brought out the entire recording studio. Remember when I was young was recorded in a paddock? You're kidding. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was in recorded a- in a paddock. And the vocals are live. It's virtually, um, um, it's just a live recording in a paddock. That's why it has. It's got a remarkable sound that you just can't 
even when I listen to it today, you think you, you just can't reproduce that sound. It's just got a, no. a, a, a sound to it. And, uh, and after four days, we stopped and uh, the police turned up and they said, my God, we've been getting complaints for the last three days and we just could not figure out whether a uh, noise was coming from. And I said, oh, sit down, have a cup of tea. We're finished now. <laughs> <laughs> you were lucky you didn't end up with kookaburras in the background, you know, making noises. Oh, I, um, I, I wouldn't be too surprised um, if, <laughs> if if you listen really closely, you, you might hear a, a, a few uh, uh, cows when there was cows around, <laughs> and uh, and they quite enjoyed it. The uh, cows, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, they were there. there. They were just days where uh, it it wasn't all corporate music. It was, yeah. you know, yeah. let's do something fantastic. Let's do something that no one's ever heard before. Let's experiment a little bit and. Does the song still bring a smile to your face, Matt? Oh, yeah, yeah. I only ever do it when I'm doing live gigs and stuff. You know, I um, just so that uh, you can uh, get the vibe, that original vibe. Um, yeah. After 50-odd years, it's hard to uh, see it as fresh. You know, I, I still play, play with it a, a bit. It often happens, you record a song and uh, a year later you think, oh, God, that would have been better if I would have done this or used that word or used a different turnaround or something like that. That little thing that comes a year later is just a, a, an afterthought. But, yeah. it, you know, it's all good fun. Yeah, so you can only hear one song. You can only hear one more song. Is it black and blue, or is it I remember when I was young? Um, uh, probably I remember when I was young. It's uh, much more personal, where black and blue um, was. Oh God, we we need a uh, we need another song for uh, Friday night. Uh, let's just do a work song. I'll sit down and write out a whole pile of heavy words, and and of course. Um, Black and Blue uh, wasn't called Black and Blue until uh, the day we recorded it. It oh, was called was We're it? Groaning. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. And um, if you uh, ever listen to the History of Chain, uh, a really early album that came out, uh, we're doing Wallachia, the big, one of the earliest pop festivals, and uh, I say, here's, here's uh, our new song, We're Groaning. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But when we recorded it and we had to write on the box what the name was, um, we changed it to Black and Blue for, for no particular reason, really. Um, but it, it is a ten times better name. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe well. in your health as well? Uh, well, um, I... Um, I do have cancer, but um, oh, just that cancer uh, thing—that's all. No, oh, that's all. Yeah, you know that, 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 that's why people, you know, people talking about COVID and monkey shit or whatever it is. And I think, mate, w when you've had cancer and um, 
uh, kidney stones, nothing can nothing can scare you after that. Fair enough. You're amazing. Yes, and uh, but you know I'm in uh, good health. You sound great. Yeah, you know, uh, um, as I say when we do our gigs, um, uh, I say at the end of the night, um, look, thanks for very, very much for coming along, but make sure you come and see us next time because we've only probably got 20 years left. <laughs> yeah. uh, Good, well Good on you, mate. Uh, terrific to catch okay, up. Okay, lovely time, you. We'll catch up sometime. Good on you. Thanks, man. Oh, that'd be great. Well, I remember when I was young, the world had just begun and I was happy. I used to wonder about the earth and how it moved around the sun so snappy.
go. Uh, what a great song, what a distinctive vocal performance and what amazing stories those two blokes tell. Could you hear the cows in the background of that song? <laughs> yes. It's quite. The, the, in the middle of a panic, for God's sake. What? <laughs> no, I don't know of anybody that's recorded in the middle of a cow panic with the cows and and it, you know, it came out great, but, you know, who would have thought that you could do that? But, the things um, that we've I, discovered about the vocal performances of, uh, of absolutely iconic Australian songs on this program uh, never cease to amaze me. Well, one of the things I found is, is with, you know, people when we talk about these songs, a lot of these great songs that you and me love, when you ask them about how they wrote, oh, it just something popped into my head and it's just almost like, you know, they just sort of patched something together yep. and... It turned out great. Yep, or I, I didn't guess. like the vocal performance. I actually had laryngitis at the time or, you know, there was – Yeah. It's all those really weird, wonderful stories. It's And, ha- and how many how many acts have we spoken to and they say, oh, they still reckon we needed one more song, so we went home and we <laughs> wrote, wrote, wrote one song. It's the last song we recorded on the album and it was the biggest hit. Yep. Nick Kershaw with Wouldn't It Be Good who talked about that the other week. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, and I think In Excess, uh, What You Need, I think that was one of those songs too. It's like G. um, Wayne Thomas, Open Up Your Heart, that was one that was written after all the soundtrack stuff was done for the film. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So I guess the lesson is don't try too hard because otherwise you'll stuff it up. Yep, and don't be too clinical in the recording process, all those things that were, you know. That Get the cows involved as quickly <laughs> as you can. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a research and development uh, in, a, in a record company somewhere going, maybe we should bring in the cows. What do you think? I'm going to record my next album at the CSIRO. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? Um, I might go down the RSPCA and lay down an EP. Who knows? Yeah, perfect time. Matt Taylor, Phil Manning, <laughs> thank you both for your time. I really loved having them on the program. Now we're going to get to a man who had and still has the biggest selling single that's ever been uh, made available in this country, a massive uh, single at the time. Uh, back in the uh, early 1980s or mid-1980s. It was called Australiana, and he's got a new documentary that's uh, showing now on Fox Docos. Uh, it's called Skin in the Game. So uh, let me introduce you to Ostentatious. All right. Skin in the Game, the documentary uh, that is uh, screening on uh, Fox uh, Docos and uh, and Foxtel. Why did you want to make it? Well, you know, I've, I've had a, a 40-year career now, four-decades career, and... Um, I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding of where I actually come from in terms of um, you know what I'm on about, and um, I think that I think I wanted to make something that clarified all of the, all of those issues, you know, because people see me in these pubs or wherever they see me, and uh, ostentatious is a fairly forthright, fairly aggressive, fairly pushy, very um, very in your face type of character, and. Um, a lot of people get pretty shit-faced at these shows and I think they, a lot of them misunderstand what's going on. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully this thing will clear up a lot of that stuff and um, maybe not. Is, is it because of the, the, the nature of Australian sort of sense of humour that your confrontational style rile people more than it probably does, say, in America or, or other countries? Well, I think that's true. There's not really, there hasn't really been a tradition of stand-up comedy in Australia like there has been in the US. So, you know, as you know, mate, and I've just been over there for the last few weeks, and um, the, sty- the, uh, the the various styles of comedy. I mean, there's a huge range of 
comedians. You go, you've got a guy like Steinfeld who's fairly, fairly genteel, and then you've got people like Sam Kinison and Bill Hicks and Lenny Bruce and you know um, George Carlin, all those sort of guys that really want to shake it up. I fit in that. I fit in that category, you know, and. Um, that's not pretty. That's not common in Australia. Most of the comedians want to please the audience. And hey, how you doing? How you going? How's it going? Welcome to the show. Where you from? You're from out of town. Well, you know, in the states, there's a lot of those comedians, and there's a lot of comedians like that. Hey, how you going, mate? Yeah, no, you like a Carl Barron. I mean, they're not <laughs> they're not offensive, and they're not challenging at all to the audience. So was your? Uh, I mean, and you talk about this in the doco uh, that uh, you know your your goal was to to make people think. Was it originally to make them laugh or to make them think, or did that is that evolved over the years, or where did that start? Well, I think uh, you know, just I mean, it's a progressive thing, stand-up comedy, and yeah, it takes a long time to get it together. I've always had this ability to be funny on the spot. That's really my only ability. It's not, you know, Billy Birmingham is a great writer and uh, whatever and performer, but uh, you know, a guy like me, I'm 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 just really, you know. I'm a, I'm, a improv- I'm an improvisational entertainer. So I started off, you know, very precariously in 1981 with Rodney <laughs> at the comedy store, which had just opened in Sydney, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was just looking for a place to to put myself in life, and um, I'd, I'd you know been at university, and I was at film school, and I was a photographer, and I'd, I'd done many things, but never uh, never really successfully, and. Uh, so I thought I'd try stand-up comedy, and uh, I started, fa- you know, fairly and fairly. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, I was I was pretty shaky at the beginning, and um, it took a long time to get confident to bring the real the real Sandy up on the stage. When did that happen for you? Did that happen? Were you developing that before Australiana went whooshka and bang, and then everything changed? I think so, but you know, when Billy Billy went went off to do his own stuff. Around late 1984, you know, just after you know this huge success, and uh, he went off to do the Twelfth Man, and uh, I just made the decision to to keep going as a as you know to stand as a stand up comedian because I mean I made a lot of records, but uh, yeah. I really was interested in this stand up thing because I, I love the I love the the uh, the immediacy of the reaction from the audience. I love that. I love I love. Um, I love not knowing what's going what's going to happen in my show from where from, I mean I've got I've got material but I but I really rely on what's going on in the room whatever whatever I can create in that room if I have to push people to the limit where they want to kill me it's very can become very interesting and it can become dangerous but uh, that's okay danger's good you know and uh, that's uh, pretty much guided my my way through this, and uh, I know you're six foot four, and you're and you're loud, and you and you've got a big, strong, commanding presence. But there must have been times when you were doing what you do, and that's push people's buttons. That you must have gone, oh shit, hang on. Uh, yeah, well, I was up in this place called Wardell once, and um, I was at the end of my marriage, and uh, I was feeling pretty uh, sensitive. And a woman came up through the audience and threw a wine glass in my face. Um, I mean, threw the wine in my face, and uh, as she was as she was going away, I just nicked on the back of the neck, and I just thought, you know, this is this is intolerable behaviour. You know, you don't throw wine at, a, at an entertainer. And then out of the shadows, I saw this giant brick shit house coming towards me, <laughs> and uh, he said, "Hey, mate, you 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 my wife," and um, 
this thing just didn't didn't stop moving and came and just wanted to kill me. Absolutely wanted to kill me. Threw me against the the stained glass windows and the the front window of this old beautiful old pub and cracked the window. Didn't fall out, but then uh, just you know laid into me. And I remember the owner of the venue saying, "Oh yeah, man, I think you might have gone a bit too far this this show." <laughs> and he he didn't pull the guy off me. Let the guy, you know. I was damaged for a couple of weeks, but you know, it was look, it's it's all part of the journey, mate. And uh, a lot of people turn up at my show saying, "Oh, you're a legend, mate! Awesome, Titan is a legend." And then ten minutes later, they want to kill me because they uh, they got past the point of no return with the alcohol. So. We all, and that happens a lot. We, we all, I mean, basically, we all want to be liked. Um, uh, but uh, but your style and and the way you go about to kind of doing it doesn't doesn't lend itself to that. How have you how have you kind of uh, in your own mind come to terms with that? Well, I, look, I you know we, we we want to be liked, but you know uh, what's more important is actually creating something interesting that lasts. You know, so I think that all the comedians. That are like from Andy Kaufman to, like I said, Bill Hicks or Carlin or any of those people that have got a more of an intellectual, um, you know, agenda. They tend to be the ones that last. The ones that the ones that are just, you know, fairly, you know, mundane and fairly, uh, you know, suck up to the audience. They're not people you'll remember. I mean, I think uh, I think my career has been fairly memorable, and a lot of people have been to many shows that have been, you know, not violent, but just, you know, they get out of control, you know, on many levels. And uh, that's so interesting to me, all that stuff. You know, it's it's, it's pushing the boundaries and uh, challenging the crowd and, uh, you know, discussing issues that may be difficult. So I, I, I've always thought that that's a far more interesting way to go. I don't need to be like, mate. I've got, uh, I got you know, I've got a couple of kids that love me and that's yeah. enough. Uh, so you you do have that 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 turn off point where you go, uh, and and did not a lot of it of that in the in the in the doco to be honest. A lot of the the you know the the vegan non drinker father of two kind of there's there's not a lot of that in the doco, but that that is obviously a big part of you as well. But it's it, that's Sandy, that's not Austin. Well, yeah, I mean, but, but they, they they're fairly mixed up, you know. I, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of me in Austin. There's a lot of Austin in me, yeah. but. Uh, my life has always been, you know, all, all the stuff that I do off stage imitates, you know, what I do on stage. So, or and vice versa. So, I, I muck around all the time, and uh, you know, a lot of people find that difficult. I'm sure you've heard all those stories, millions of stories about me, and the, you know, the way people, you know, react to me and whatever. But uh, who care? Who gives a shit? Yeah. Do you, do you really not give a shit? Do you really not care what? You know, road crews or or venue managers or all those sort of people say about you. Well, well, not really, mate, because I'm a comedian. I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. mucking around. I mean, it's not. You know, people take it too, all too seriously. With this cancel culture thing and all this stuff, it's just it's going too far. You know, you need to separate the artist from his work a little bit. I think you know. So. Has it? Has it? I know you do. You do an enormous amount of of live performances in any given year. Has what? Has as the way society has changed in its acceptance of uh, you know what it'll put up with? Has that changed the way you've had to go about doing what you do? Well, not really, because I've always stuck to my guns, mate. I've always done it. I've always I've, all my stuff has been about social consciousness from the beginning. I've always taken. I took on the Catholic Church, and yeah. I took on Tony Abbott, and I uh, I took on um, you know Aboriginal reconciliation issues, and uh, 
I've always, you know, I've always been uh, been socially conscious, and uh, I don't think I've been condescending towards anyone. And um, as a as a as a son of a Holocaust survivor, I understand persecution and racism, and I've grown up with that and been called a dirty fucking Jew, you know, and all this sort of stuff in in Australia. Yeah. But uh, and I've, and I've, that's happened on stage too, and you know, people, yeah, hey, you're Jewish, mate. Are you, are you Jewish? <laughs> so uh, I, I've, I've had a career where I've taken on big issues, and um, but I look, at, my shows are pretty funny, mate. You, you can speak to people, and they'll tell you they've been pretty funny, and um, as well as being on the money. Australiana was an enormous success, an unbelievable success, and still, you know, the biggest selling single ever to this day. Is it a fond memory, and is it a, is something that you you sort of you know like a like a faded photo in your wallet type deal? No, no, I'd always do it on stage. You know, it's like um, you know Billy Joel has to do Piano Man. I mean, you, you've got to do you got to do these things, and every show I do them and. You know, I do them in different ways. I might do them in different accents or just muck around with them or yeah. cut them short or change them around or do them backwards or whatever it is. But I always do it. And, and no, I, I don't regret anything. Uh, firstly, my relationship with Billy Birmingham was just a terrific thing. And uh, the, guy's a, the guy's a comedy genius. And um, we had so much fun together. And, you know, he's in the doco and he um, yep. he's a funny, he's a very funny man. And... Um, that, that, so I, I, I um, all those memories are terrific, and uh, the success of Australiana just hit me like a, like a rocket, and um, I had no idea that this thing was going to go where it did and be on the top of the charts for thirteen weeks in 1983. And uh, so I was hanging out with everybody, mate. You know, they all wanted to know me, even even Barnsley. Well, I mean, I Everybody wanted to be my mate, you know, so there you go. So what do you want people to take out of Skin in the Game? What do you, what do you want them to uh, to walk away with? Well, um, like I said earlier, I think it's important that people uh, can see a, a, a long career and that uh, somebody's striving for excellence because that's, that's what I'm doing. I want to continue doing this stand-up because, it really, it's still a challenge and going, I'm, I've got a lot of shows coming up and I, um, you know, the pandemic obviously slowed everyone down and, uh, but uh, right now I've got the monkey pox <laughs> and um, it's, not, it's not bad though, it's okay and I've, I've, got, I've had the leprosy this year and the diphtheria, right. but uh, I'm keeping, I'm going to keep on, you know, trucking man because I, uh, I love this job, I love going from town to town, I love the isolation too on the road and... Um, it's very therapeutic, and I just, uh, I really, I love, I just love the job. Can you so see? I think that. Can you yeah. see a day when you get sick of being on the road? Well, there's a comedian called Henny Youngman. I don't know if you've yeah, ever yeah, heard yeah. of it, but yeah. he was. My mother-in-law is so fat when she sits around the house. She really sits around the house. This guy worked on the road till he was nearly a hundred, yeah. and then basically dropped it on stage. So that's 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 what I would. Uh, that would be the the way to go out. I reckon. You 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 dab, you've dabbled in acting. I mean, holy smoke! Is, is you've shown a little clip of that in the uh, in the doco, and you've you've done some yep. stuff over the years. And and I'm I'm sure there would have been 
TV offers, radio offers, and all that. Uh, do, do you regret knocking that stuff back, or did did you? I, knock I it never back? knocked anything back. I don't, I don't think there weren't that many offers, mate. Okay. Really, I think people, like because I think people are. I, I'm right on the fringe of entertainment, and yeah. you, you must know that. I mean, they, they're all frightened of me, or they think I'm difficult, or. But you know, I've worked with Philip Noyce, and I've worked with. Um, Baz Luhrmann, and I've worked with Jane Campion, and I've worked with um, many other, but with with, uh, with Paul Fennick, you know, we, we, we won yeah, Top yeah. Fist together, and yeah. um, I, I've worked with some very talented people. Uh, it's usually the people who really are on, are, you know, on the case that can really see what I can do, and uh, if you're with a good director, you can you can do a great performance. Do you want, uh, and do you you want have, to act? Have, 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 I mean, is that something you want to do more of, or not? Well, well, I'm writing a couple of pictures at the moment. I do enjoy it. What I really would love to do before I uh, get carried out in a box from the, you know, from the, uh, the uh, you know, Waronga RSL or whatever it is, um, <laughs> is uh, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to direct a comedy because I went to film school before I started in this and I graduated as a director and I made comedy movies and, um, you know, a few, a few short to short, Films. Yeah. I'd like to be able to make a very funny movie, a really, really funny, clever movie. Whether I was in it or not, I don't know. But uh, I'd just love to be able to direct a picture. So but that could still happen, you know. I'm only in my early forties now, so <laughs> right. and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good doing a few push-ups every day and uh, on the on a good diet, mate. Lots of lots of celery juice. So and I'm doing well. Beautiful. Skin in the Game is the name of the documentary. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Austin. Really appreciate it, and uh, good luck for the future, mate. Oh, thanks a lot, mate. Thanks a lot. All right, mate. Take care. Thanks. Uh, thanks for doing man. that. You're Appreciate a good man, it. Kevin. Good See on you, mate. Sitting at home last Sunday morning, me mate Boomerang <laughs> said he was having a few people round for a barbie. Said he might cook a burrow or two. I said, sounds great. Will Wallaby there? He said, yeah, and Veggie might come too. So I said to the wife, you want to go, Anna? <laughs> She said, I'll go if Dingo's. <laughs> so I said, Abuma, what will we do about Nulla? He said, Nulla bores me to tears, leave him at home. All right, that's Ostentatious. Australiana, massive, massive, massive song in the uh, in the 1980s. Had a bit to do with Austin uh, in, in those days because Billy uh, Birmingham was writing for him and we did some radio specials on 3XY at the time. So, uh, and Austin came in a few times to 3XY and we did some stuff and that's how I got a friendship with, with Austin and also how I got a friendship with uh, uh, Billy Birmingham over the years too. But you will have noticed I did that interview on my own. Good for you, Kev. You're big boy now. Uh, now, Austin <laughs> toured with the X-Men at one stage yeah. and, and you didn't really want to do that interview, did you? No, I didn't really. Um no, nah, look, you know, like it's it's difficult to um, get on well with everybody, and um, I don't know, it's just something with me and Austin. We didn't quite hit it off, yep. Um, you know, but anyway, you know, he's, I wish him well. Oh, and, he's a legitimate uh, uh, history. Will tell you, he's legitimately involved in the Australian music industry uh, through that and through the Phantom Shuffle and all that all that music he did. That was that is still a massive song uh, or song, massive single. Australiana and the doco is interesting. You should have a look at the doco. It is interesting. It does give you an insight into what he's all about. And he's not everyone's cup of tea. And he's happy with that. And at the end of the day, he's the only one that has to has to worry about that. I've always Fair got on, I've always had a good working relationship with him. So oh, good for you. That's I was great, happy Jeff. happy for us to uh, to have that as part of the program. As you were happy to have the interview on part of the program, you just didn't want to be in the interview, which is I think fair enough. 
Well, yeah, okay. Let's just leave it at that. And we'll we'll try and organise someone that I don't like. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll, I'll find somebody that you don't like and, we'll get the, and I'll interview them. Oh, hang on. I'll give, on hang on, Brian. I'll give you a list. <laughs> uh, so thanks to Phil Manning. Thanks to Matt Taylor. Uh, check out Phil's uh, new album stuff that's available online as well. Uh, and terrific to catch up with those blokes. And uh, check out Skin in the Game. And that is uh, this edition of uh, Life of Brian. Thanks to Murcotts. As we said, you know, everyone can be a better driver, even you. Especially me. <laughs> Especially me. one 576 That's the number for everybody to go and make themselves a safer driver. Absolutely. Mercots.edu.au. You can book online. You can get gift certificates online. All that stuff's available to you. Advanced driving and defensive driving, really important part of uh, making it into 2023. Uh, well, everybody thinks that they can win Tats Lotto. Yep. But you've got a better chance of being in a car accident. So yep. get down to Mercots. Yep. Uh, give yourself your best possible chance. Thank you, That's Brian. It. We shall see you on the next edition of uh, Life of Brian. We have some fantastic guests uh, that we've uh, we've spoken to already, some that we've got lined up. Uh, we've got uh, the Thompson twins on the way. We've got uh, Normie Rowe we're speaking to. We've got, uh, you name it, we've got them coming, uh, some absolute rippers. So we look forward to uh, bringing you those people. We do indeed. And it's been a splendid show, Kev. Uh, thank you. For we're just going to workshop the penthouse uh, version of this well, we've got to start off by getting a whole heap of grog. That's, <laughs> that's how that show went. People just pissed out of their mind on national television. Uh, Fantastic. All right. See you, Brian. Take care. Uh, all right. Now we cross to the trucks. <laughs>